The threat is invisible, but the harm is not. The web of wireless radiation that envelops us in a crowded city or suburb grows thicker each day. And though we can't see it, it's affecting all of us. But some people are more deeply and immediately affected than others. The exposure to wireless radiation interferes with their lives in ways that makes it almost impossible to live normally, to visit a store, go to the doctor, or ride on public transportation. Electromagnetic sensitivity is real, painful, and debilitating. This is a growing public health issue. This is something our federal government needs to research, understand, and address. And this is Green Street. again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts in health, science, law, and medicine all here on Green Street to help you understand just a little more about what is happening in the world around you and how you and your family can live a better, safer, and healthier life in this crazy, often toxic world. Last week on Green Street, we talked with Susan Foster and Scott McCullough about radiofrequency radiation and its cumulative impact on health particularly for those who are more sensitive to that radiation than others. We're going to continue that conversation today with part two of our interview, right after Patty and the headlines from the Green Street News Department. What do you got for us today? Mm. Um, We're all familiar with what Joe Manchin did this past week, uh, and this is a press release from the Center for Biological Diversity, and the title is Manchin Poison Pills Buried in Inflation Reduction Act Will Destroy Livable Climate. The Inflation Reduction Act is a great name for a bill. It sounds okay. great. I mean, it does yeah, sound but, great. But let's hear the let's hear yeah, the, let's the hear dirty the details. News. Right. Okay, go ahead. The provisions are buried near the end of the 725-page Inflation Reduction Act. The bill was released Wednesday after Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that they had agreed to the $370 billion package. This is a climate suicide pact, said Brett Hartle, government affairs director at the Center for Biological Diversity. It's self-defeating to handcuff renewable energy development to massive new oil and gas extraction. The new leasing required in this bill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country and is a slap in the face to the communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels. The newly proposed climate and energy package will require massive oil and gas leasing in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska, reinstate an illegal 2021 Gulf lease sale, and mandate that millions more acres of public lands be offered for leasing before any new solar or wind energy project could be built on public lands or waters. The bill would require the Interior Department to offer at least 2 million acres of public lands and 60 million acres of offshore waters for oil and gas leasing each year for a decade aid as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. If the department failed to offer these minimum amounts for leasing, no right of ways could be granted for any utility-scale renewable energy project on public lands or waters. So here's how you make a deal with Joe Manchin. You give him everything he wants right. for the oil and gas industry. Right. You throw in a little bit for climate. You give it a great name and you announce that you've won. Right. And everyone said, finally, Joe Manchin is, you know, coming around. Finally, he's going to he's going to get something passed. And we're so happy. We're so thrilled. Nobody's looking at the details here. 
nobody is looking. You know, well, more, more oil and gas leasing is completely incompatible with maintaining a livable planet. So, and, and you have to do the oil and gas leasing before you can do any renewable. I mean, really? This is insane. And I, yeah. I, and the, I can tell you that there will, be, there will be groups that will fight every single step of the way on this. It's totally unacceptable. And yet we've got, you know, mainstream media announcing Joe Manchin, he's our friend. Look what he's doing. You know, Finally he's, came he around to climate came change. Around. He's made a, you know, a, you know, a 180. Well, it's wrong. It's totally wrong. Yeah. Okay. All right. What else? Yeah, the next good news is um, actually written by somebody who we've had on this show, um, Dr. Brian Munch. Uh, and he actually wrote this opinion piece. And it is called Toxic Chemicals Are Causing the Collapse of Human Intelligence. Oh, boy. Yeah. The catastrophic dumbing down of America has been satirized in the movie Don't Look Up and before that, Idiocracy. A Stanford University think tank article earnestly postulates that a rise in gullibility has prompted voters in numerous developed countries to elect governments that defy their own interests. We've been talking about yeah, this, we right? Have. Yep. Indeed, after global increases in IQ after World War II of about three points per decade, multiple studies in different countries have found those born since the mid-1970s manifest a shocking decline in IQ, seven points per generation. This collapse of human intelligence has to be something in our physical or psychological environment. While contributors include socioeconomic evisceration of the middle class, poor education systems, distraction by electronic devices, inadequate diets, and even drug use, environmental toxins are likely playing a dominant role. We are awash in about 100 times more chemicals today than just two generations ago. Many are proven health hazards, especially as neurotoxins. We are all guinea pigs in a global toxicology experiment without our consent that has no scientific design or constraints conducted by people who have little understanding or concern about the consequences. Extensive research has identified the most important neurotoxins, multiple components of air pollution, lead, mercury, arsenic, manganese, PCBs, fluoride, pesticides, flame retardants, phthalates, BPA, solvents, and an army of endocrine disrupting chemicals, but they are just the tip of a very large iceberg. Most of them cross the placenta, contaminating the amniotic fluid, blood, and tissues of the fetus at the most critical stages of organ development, especially the brain. He ends by saying, lost intelligence in one child is tragic, but on a global scale, it's catastrophic. So let me get this straight. After World War II, worldwide, we had an increase in IQ of about three points per decade. Decade, correct. And mm -hmm. now we're losing and seven points per decade? And now we are losing seven points per generation, those born since the mid-1970s. There's no question that, you know, chemicals are becoming so much more ubiquitous in our, you know, in our lives today. I mean, they're in everything and people are using more products and more things because they're advertised as being good for them and good for their homes and good for their children and good for their yards and whatever it is. And people just pick them up. They don't even think twice. It's interesting. Most people are still of the opinion that if it was harmful, that it wouldn't be on a store shelf. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the attention span of the of the American public, or really of the public worldwide. Well, that's attention span. That's a little different than IQ, but you're right. Attention span is like 
plummeted. I think it has, you know, the two are fairly related because mm -hmm. people, they just, you know, they can't learn, they can't concentrate, they can't really sit still and absorb. You know, it's everything has to be immediate, you know. Media is consumed in little bites. And, you know, it's all written to an eighth grade level. If you read Charles Dickens, you're amazed that people could have understood the book because it's full of all kinds of really great words, you know, that we don't use anymore. It's really fascinating. When you say read the book, that's also something that's going by the wayside. Yeah, I know. I mean, people are just not reading. They're getting all of their information on their phones, television or whatever. There Very few people are sitting. When I say very few, there are still people who read books for sure. But they don't even make kids read books in, in many schools across this country. I don't know. Okay, so that right. was a really interesting. Toxic yeah. chemicals causing the collapse of human intelligence. Yeah. This very, last one really gets me. This last, last one really gets me. Uh -oh. This is from the New York Times. It was written by Christina Jewett. Um, the title is U.S. Government's FDA Official Regulating Tobacco Now Takes a Job at Philip Morris. A Food and Drug Administration official with considerable power over authorization decisions for e-cigarettes and products aimed at curbing smoking resigned on Tuesday to work for Philip Morris International, the global tobacco conglomerate and maker of Marlboros. The official, Matt Holman, was chief of the Office of Science in the agency's Center for Tobacco Products. In a memo to the staff on Tuesday, Brian King, the center's director, wrote that Dr. Holman had announced that he would be leaving effective immediately to join Philip Morris. The memo said Dr. Holman had been on leave and consistent with agency ethics policies, had recused himself from all tobacco center work while exploring career opportunities outside of government. His resignation adds further turmoil to the agency's tobacco control division, which is undergoing a review ordered by Dr. Robert Califf, the agency's commissioner. The division also lost its longtime director, Mitch Zeller, who retired in April. To critics, Dr. Holman's move is a particularly concerning example of the revolving door between federal officials and the industries they regulate. In this case, one that has garnered a high degree of public distrust. It has also raised questions about agency approvals, including that of Philip Morris's IQOS, a heat-not-burn tobacco device, which some researchers have found troubling. IQOS is not sold on the U.S. market now because of patent litigation, but if that were resolved, the device could face fresh FDA reviews. Federal rules governing revolving door career moves do not prevent an official from overseeing regulatory matters one week and joining a corporation with products under review the next. You would think that our revolving door policy would prevent somebody from immediately going to work for somebody he regulates. I mean, you're just asking for trouble, right? Because yeah, if they behave themselves at FDA or they behave themselves at EPA or they behave themselves at any of these agencies and do what the industry wants, they get rewarded with a really right. good job right. and benefits and vacations and right, all that right. kind of stuff. Well, you know, um, whole, Dr. Holman's recent work included preparing for and overseeing review of marketing applications for e-cigarettes and other nicotine delivery products. Mm -hmm. He said that, you know, that his exact role at Philip Morris has been so far broadly defined, but added that he would work on tobacco harm reduction efforts and provide input on regulatory submissions to the agency. I bet he will. Exactly. You know, this is just 
Well, this is not just happening in the tobacco division of, of the not. FDA. Of this not. is happening in the food division, in the drug division, in the tobacco division, the radiological division. Wow. So wow. I mean, that needs works. to change. This revolving door has to change. I mean, what was it that was put together at the Safra School for Ethics at Harvard? Yeah, that was the FCC, the revolving door at the FCC. Right, and it was FCC. called the most captured agency in Washington. Well, you know, there's going to be a contest. For contest most... between the FCC and the FDA, yes. <laughs> and EPA. And EPA, oh Come yeah. Come on now, well, don't leave them out. Don't leave All them right. out. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Today on Green Street, Patty and I are very happy to welcome back two people who know a lot about human sensitivity to wireless radiation. Susan Foster is a medical writer, social worker, and EMS advocate who has chronicled the harm caused by cell towers, especially those on or adjacent to fire stations. She's an honorary firefighter with the San Diego Fire Department. Scott McCullough is an attorney with a focus on public law and regulation relating to telecommunications, computers, and the internet. Scott successfully argued the case for Environmental Health Trust and Children's Health Defense against the FCC. Here's part two of our conversation with Susan Foster and Scott McCullough. So Scott and I have been very focused on the EMS disability part of the, the health aspect. You know, you were asking about the opt-out fees and um, is, isn't there anything that can be done? And this is what we are trying to do because we get so many uh, requests from people who are EMS disabled. They are so electrosensitive, whether it is from smart meters or cell towers close by, or there was an exposure at work. The, most of the people who are EMS disabled cannot go to work in this world. They cannot go to a job, they cannot go to the basic places that we go to enjoy and, and uh, you know, a movie theater. Let's just say they can't go out to eat. Um, they can't go to the store and they can't go to the doctor's office. They're being denied basic medical care. And so we're, we get requests, you know, can you help us with the opt-up fee? We're disabled and we, we have an opt-out fee and we just simply don't have the money to pay it every month. And it is incredibly unfair in today's world in the United States that we, we have civil rights. We have the Americans with Disabilities Act. We have the Fair Housing Act. And Scott will speak to all of this. We have the Rehabilitation Act. We have the US Access Board, which advises all the federal agencies saying in 2002, and again, reiterating in 2005, yes, electromagnetic sensitivity is a real thing. But we're going to have to convene some, some discussion groups and we're going to have to talk about this and how are we going to address the problem. And that has been going on for 20 years. So one of the things that we're trying to do is bring to the attention of the federal agencies the fact that the EMS disabled population, according to science, and I know this is a very broad range, and I can explain that, but in the United States, it is somewhere between 3% of the population and 30% of the population. Now, it, there's a, a spectrum like there is with almost any illness or constellation of, of symptoms. And it can be mild symptoms from ringing in the ears to an occasional rash to 
you forget to turn your put your phone in airplane mode at night and you, you find that you can't go to sleep. But that's something that can be adjusted and dealt with. That's a very mild form, frankly, where you're able to identify those symptoms. In a, and I should add, for people who don't know uh, whether or not, you know, we have this list of, of multiple neurological and some immunological symptoms. If you don't know that wireless radiation is causing this, but this started in your home, I would strongly recommend that you try, you go stay in somebody else's home. We've had some examples over the last year or two of people who've had small cells placed in their front yards on utility poles, uh, sometimes just on a monopole. They, someone came back from, from a trip to Europe where they were taking care of a post-surgery parent and they came back after four weeks and there was a cell tower in their front yard. And that was mm. a small cell, mm. which many people refer to as 5G. And all of a sudden, uh, this man was, he was a healthy, uh, extremely healthy fit lieutenant in law enforcement in New York City. And he couldn't sleep and he had headaches and he was going to work where he was in charge of 200 people on two hours of sleep. His sister was on the third floor of the house that he had put his life savings into and, and redone entirely. She was on the third floor and living there because she was fighting cancer at the young age of 31. And she had finished her uh, chemotherapy and he expected to come back from taking care of their father in, in Europe and find that she was feeling better after the side effects from chemo. But he came home, she was riddled with headaches and she was vomiting. And he, he quickly put two and two together because he had never felt as ill as he did in his home. And so they both had to try living someplace else. You know, he called the city, can't you get rid of this cell tower that's in my front yard? My sister's done with chemo, she was doing better. And suddenly she has all these side effects again that are reminiscent of chemotherapy. And he was describing his symptoms and they said, no, there was nothing that they could do. Mm. So they have had to literally abandon the home. Now, when, when this police lieutenant decided to move in with his girlfriend for a week, he felt better. He said, even though I was sharing one room with her and, okay. and it, you know, he said it, it was kind of close quarters and I was used to having this, this home that I was so proud of that I had redone myself. And he said, I actually, I felt better. His sister right. felt better when she was staying elsewhere. So you get out of the offending environment, the environment where you first started experiencing the sleep disturbances, headache, fatigue, et cetera, nausea, you know, skin complaints, rashes. And then if you clear, that is definitely noteworthy. And then if you go back to the offending environment and you react again, and, so, and I just a caution to everybody that sometimes when you go back, the body will be telling you very loudly and clearly that it doesn't want you to go back because your symptoms can be a little bit more extreme than they were when they came on rather insidiously on a daily basis. Mm. So, yeah. all right. A lot of these things, you know, people can can remediate uh, mm -hmm. smart meters. They can't antennas. They can't, um, as you said, they, you know, there's nothing we can do. We can't, we can't remove that antenna. This is one of the things that we work on on a daily basis is writing codes for communities so that they don't put these antennas in residential areas. But I would really like to know from Scott, if you could just review what is available to these people, as far as the ADA compliance is there something that communities have to do to accommodate people? 
or it businesses is. or courthouses or libraries? Well, yes. I mean, you know, what? let me first give the disclaimer. I'm going to give like my opinion. Good. On these things. Yeah, we want <laughs> your opinion. Now, but folks need to understand that when you go out there and try to exercise your rights, you're going to hit a bunch of walls and people are going to deny that, you know, they're going to say that you're just imagining all of this. You're not really sick. You're certainly not disabled. And it would just be too much trouble. You, you don't have any rights and it would be too much trouble to accommodate you anyway. So no, go away. So just folks need to be aware of that. However, you know, there are statutes, both federal and state, that on their face cover this situation and give folks who do have the more severe forms to the extent that it materially impacts their ability to engage in normal life functions, you know, the ability to work, the ability to move around, the ability to have any semblance of a normal existence without help. If you are, quote, disabled in meeting the terms of, of these statutes, and they all use the same definition, then there's the Americans with Disabilities Act, there's a Rehabilitation Act, and then there is the Fair Housing Act. Let me deal with each of those. I'll start with the most complicated. That is the ADA. The Americans with Disabilities Act has three parts. There's part one, which deals with uh, those who are disabled in the workplace. And it requires that all employers uh, provide accommodations to otherwise qualified people that are disabled. So if you are otherwise qualified, but you have EHS and it is a disability, and your employer has a, a workplace that's just laden with wires, then it, the way that the act works under Title I, they would have a duty to try to find a way to accommodate you by putting you in an area where, you know, an RF-free zone, just to pick an example, by not forcing you to use a, a, a laptop with a Wi-Fi unit or with a, a SIM card, let you work at home give you an, an accommodation so that you could still continue to function and perform your job while not being exposed to the thing that's making you sick. Mm -hmm. That's Title I. Title II covers public areas, governments. It only applies to state and local government, not the federal government. For example, let's say you want to attend a city council meeting and they no longer afford an opportunity for you to attend the city council meeting remotely, like many were during COVID. You have to go in. If you want to talk to council, you got to go in and stand at the podium for your three minutes. Well, many of these public buildings will have a Wi-Fi network, and there's a router and antenna protruding from the roof in the middle of the room. If that sets you off your, your conditions, then under Title II, you have the right to ask them to please turn off the router at least during the time you're in the building so that you can exercise your rights to talk to your elected representatives. This would also apply to things like courthouses, public libraries, any public building. It, it sometimes gets interesting when, for example, I inform a court that my uh, client needs the court to turn off its Wi-Fi router so that my client can attend the court hearing wherein we're suing somebody else for denying a disability. 
So, um, you know, it can get very interesting. Title three is the one that's still, and it's admittedly a bit unclear, but Title three of the ADA applies to service establishments, you know, stores, uh, shopping malls, hotels, any place where they are providing a public service that's open to the public. And, you know, you go in, it's, it, you, you'll always see all the handicap access, the, the mobility impaired. Uh, they'll have wheelchair ramps. They'll have doors. If, if the place has got multiple buildings, they'll have an elevator rather than just stairs. Well, in similar fashion, those who are EMS should be able to access these public accommodations without being exposed to the toxin that makes them sick. So if you want to go in, I don't know why you'd want to, but if you want to go into a Verizon wireless store to test their wares, you you actually have a right to ask them to turn off their Wi-Fi network because their store, at least, is a public accommodation. Now, where it gets interesting is whether they are a public accommodation also in terms of the service that they are providing to the public. By that, I mean, if they have a cell tower outside your home, do they have a duty to accommodate you by not inundating your home with this toxin that makes you sick? Mm. And there's considerable legal debate over whether that is the case. We have contended that they are, even though the people who want the accommodation are absolutely not wanting to buy the service. They want to avoid the service. Correct. Mm. We, we are arguing, nonetheless, that Title III applies to these wireless companies. And by the way, also to the utilities with regard to smart meters. And um, they must accommodate those who their product is making sick. Scott, does the law talk about how reasonable the accommodation needs to be? It does. And once you get past the fact whether they have a duty at all uh, and whether you have a disability, that's where the debate next moves. Mm-hmm. Because under the Act, they have a duty to provide a reasonable accommodation. And there's been a series of court decisions on how far somebody has to go before it is no longer a reasonable accommodation. Generally speaking, if what you're asking them to do would so materially change what it is they do so that it becomes something else, or if it would prevent them from doing whatever it is that they do, then that's too much. It's not a reasonable accommodation. And so there's considerable debate over whether Somebody who's got a cell tower or a small cell outside their home, uh, when they're asking for an accommodation, uh, whether their accommodation that, that they need to be removed or pointed another direction uh, is a reasonable accommodation request under those tests. There's a lot to be decided yet in this realm. We're still at the first point. Is there a duty at all? Because mm-hmm. for the most part, the federal government, even though it acknowledged this 25 years ago, now pretends that EMS is not a thing, that it is not a disability, that it's all just in everybody's head and they just need to get over it. We've got to get that past that first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the complicated one. We're, now we're moving on to the next the next piece of this. It, yes. In addition to that, there's there's an act called the Rehabilitation Act. Right. Now that, that applies to federal agencies. Uh, it is the federal equivalent of the ADA. It is not as expansive. What it generally does, however, is first of all, um, any federal agency must give an accommodation in its employment practices to somebody who has this disability. So in the same way that Title I of the ADA operates, 
this the, the Rehabilitation Act Section 504 operates. So if you work for the federal government and RF makes you sick, you have a right to go to them and say, um, I need to be in an RF free zone or I need to be an accommodated by you allowing me to do my work at home where I can create my own RF free zone. In addition, under the Rehabilitation Act, if federal money goes to private parties through grants or gifts or bequests or through contract, then the recipient of those funds is bound mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and must grant accommodations. Mm -hmm. So once again, if in returning to the mobility impaired context, if, if I have a federal contract or I get a federal grant, my workplace must be accommodating for those who are mobility impaired. Finally, I, I would like to point out that there's a lot of federal government money sloshing around for <laughs> expansion of broadband. And we're looking right now at the extent to which the Rehabilitation Act would require that when the federal government, whichever agency it is, and there's several of them administering this money, when they are awarding these funds, uh, whether they must require that disability rights be granted, not only in general, but in particular to those with DHS. And how that would manifest will depend on everything. But if you look at the grants, they all say you got to you, you got to comply with the rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. You got to mm -hmm. comply with the ADA. They say that in the grant. Mm -hmm. I've seen many of them. The problem is, once again, getting the federal government to realize that it's handing out all this money to people who are not who refuse to recognize this condition and what they must do as a consequence of receiving the federal money with regard to that condition. Mm. Fascinating. All right, Susan, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about the research that has been done and some of the research that you yourself have been involved in in this whole area. Well, the research that I was involved with was with firefighters in California. And this was starting in uh, 2001. I was asked by a firefighter in a local station in San Diego to write an appeal for them because there were 24 antenna that were going to go on their rooftop. And um, so I wrote an appeal even back then on fire, on lightning strikes and the potential for fire and neurotoxic chemicals. And I, uh, I grew up with a corporate attorney father who said corporations don't change anything until, unless they're sued. So you can imagine they've erred on the side of caution. So I took an educated guess based on what I learned growing up with him. And I, in my appeal, I said, there's no firewall around the rechargeable batteries. And that turned out to be correct. So we delayed implementation of those towers until uh, I think it was Singular or Sprint you know, decided to create a firewall around their rechargeable batteries. But in the process, the firefighters were telling me something that shocked me, quite frankly, that firefighters that they were hearing from throughout the state were becoming ill with cell towers placed in their stations. And you might remember that when the network was initially being built out, that one of the most common places, and it still is one of the most common places to find cell towers, is fire stations because mm -hmm. they're centrally located, they're near main arteries and people like to use their phones in their cars. Uh, and, and so, and then additionally, the fire chiefs, if, if the fire chiefs made a deal with telecom, then they were bringing in more revenue for the city because it went to the city, not the fire departments themselves, at least initially. 
Um, there is also, as I've, I've been involved with the firefighters for 20 years, I've also seen situations where a battalion chief, for example, would make a deal with a wireless company and they would suddenly have a new hook and ladder truck. And so oh, deals are made on the side. I know this, I know this happens and this is the way business is done. So this is the industry loves the fire stations as targets, okay, because they're because of their location and because they are flat. There are uh, two routes of you know entrance and exit, so it's perfect for them. Great for the city. Terrible for the firefighters. So firefighters are the strongest of the strong among us. And mm -hmm. I found out about a station in Central California where the firefighters had what I recognized because I'm a medical writer. I recognized right away as I was hearing about their symptoms. They, ha they had severe neurological symptoms. And in California, it's very difficult to become a firefighter. You have to score in the 98th or 99th percentile in terms of uh, cognition and fitness. So the, the cream of the crop are hired for the fire department. So to find out that the men in this particular town, experienced firefighters, were getting lost in the same town they grew up in, and uh, a medic was forgetting what he was doing, a 20-year veteran who'd never made a mistake after the tower in front of their station was activated. He was disoriented and they were called out on a, a, a medical emergency and it was cardiac victim, heart attack, and he was doing CPR. So chest compressions and, and resuscitation. And he forgot what he was doing. He forgot where he was. There is a protocol for starting over. And everybody knows that protocol because it is possible in the, in the chaos of what can be going on with emergencies to forget. He couldn't even remember the protocol for starting over. Fortunately, his captain was counting. So he took over. Um, but it was so devastating for this medic. He actually changed stations. He said, I'm not ever going to make a mistake. Again, I've prided myself on not doing that. I got to know these men over a 15-year period of time. This is the first fire department to ever sue, the, the one and only fire department to ever sue a wireless company. And I read their, uh, their depositions, and they gave stunning description of all of the symptoms that they had. Yet now, after it was about 15 years that they had this exposure, there is severe memory loss among them. It was... CDMA technology, which is one form of the technology. And we think this is why they didn't have a cluster of cancer, which some fire stations do have. They have non-presumptive cancer clusters that are not typically associated with firefighting. These men did not, they had some of the most neuro, severe neurological symptoms I've seen. So Dr. Gunnar Heuser and I decided to do SPECT brain scans, and we could only, because of the expense, we couldn't test all 20 men. We, we took six of the men who did volunteer, more volunteered than we were able to test. And this SPECT brain scan traces a radioactive isotope through the bloodstream and into the brain and highlights the brain in different colors. And all of these men had brain damage. We tried as best we could to isolate any chemical exposure from the men we were testing. Were they free of chemical exposure? No one is. And our firefighters? No, of course they're not. But this was uh, stunning to see the results. So this is why the firefighters have gone for various exemptions and why they're often granted setbacks. Because um, my argument is if the firefighters are impaired, um, then society itself is is not safe. In, in mm -hmm. San Diego, mm -hmm. they got a 300 foot setback from 5G towers. 
And then ultimately it was just signed into law in October of 2021. Uh, Governor Newsom signed this. There is a exemption for every single fire station in California from 5G towers. Mm. So that was the firefighters, but I don't want to take Scott's time. I do want to tell you about a, a study that to me is the single most fascinating study I've ever encountered. And that was T-Mobile commissioned a study in 2000. And this was in the parent company, uh, T-Mobile in Germany, which is the parent company for the US T-Mobile. And it was done at the Ecolog Institute, which is a famous institute of scientists in Hanover, Germany, very reputable. And T-Mobile was really looking for direction on how they proceeded. This was 2000, there were concerns about brain tumors. There were some concerns about people becoming ill near towers. So the aim was to evaluate the EMF risk and the need for implementing precautionary health protection. So there were two main findings. Uh, There were definitely adverse health impacts associated with exposure to EMFs. And then there were strong precautions from the Ecolog Institute to T-Mobile warnings to significantly lower the power of the EMFs to which the public would be exposed. So let me very quickly list off where they had positive findings, meaning they had, they had statistically significant and conclusive findings in the following areas associated with RF EMF exposure, cancer, leukemia, testicular cancer, cellular research in cancer, which really is translated into DNA damage and oxidative stress. So that means your antioxidant defenses are low and numerous uh, diseases, including cancer, can result from oxidative stress. Uh, Debilitation of the immune system. This just was, it was not just an adverse effect. It was debilitation of the immune system. Influences on the central nervous system and cognitive function. So this may be related to the tsunami of dementias that we are seeing now. And then very interestingly, and this plays into the disability portion, this is in 2000. And and very interesting when the industry says there's no such thing as electrosensitivity or the government does. This was one of the main findings of the Ecolog Institute was electrosensitivity, or they called it electromagnetic hypersensitivity. And their conclusion was it was very difficult to test this because the sensitivity manifests itself in a variety of symptoms and the composition and strength of the complaints vary. So like we were saying earlier, it's, there's a, a broad spectrum there, but they urgently call, warned T-Mobile, don't put your cell towers in residential areas, mm. schools, where nurseries are, you know, preschools, playgrounds, hospitals, And all, this is a direct quote, all other places at which humans are present for longer than four hours. Now, what did T-Mobile do with this study? They left it, and I, I, this is my term, they left it buried in the German language. I spoke German years ago, and I forgot it because I don't use it here. But it's a very difficult language to learn, and not that many of us learn it well. And so when I say buried in the German language, it's just incredibly difficult to learn and to hang on to. It's not the sort of thing you're going to pick up a a medical study uh, that was done in 2000 and read it in German. It's not going to be broadcast to the world. But what happened is T-Mobile said, forget it. We are not going with the study. Uh, We are walking away from the study. And it was filed away by somebody at the Ecolog Institute and about a decade, a little more than a decade later, 
leaked to a nonprofit, very much like Americans for Responsible Technology, um, prior to your existence, but very similar. And so around 2014, this nonprofit paid to have this report translated into the English language so it could be distributed throughout the world. It has not been that widely distributed. We did, Scott and attorney Odette Wilkins and I did include it in a paper we submitted to the FCC and we are submitting it to other agencies as well. And the, the fascinating thing about this is that the paper we submitted was submitted on May 16th. So a few minutes after midnight, uh, as the very beginning minutes of, of May 16th, 2022, I went on T-Mobile's website to see what they were saying that day that mm. we submitted the paper. And I wrote this into our paper. And here's what T-Mobile was saying on May 16th of 2022. Quote, based on scientific data currently available, T-Mobile has not determined that RF energy from wireless phones causes health risks. End quote. Now, guess who... T-Mobile said we can rely on to back up that assertion. The websites of the FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission, the FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration, which you know very well, the NCI, the US National Cancer Institute, and WHO, the World Health Organization. You go to all their websites and they say almost exactly the same thing based on scientific data currently available they have determined that there are no health concerns related to RF radiation. So that's what we are dealing with. This is why the general public is mystified when they have symptoms such as this constellation of neurological symptoms that we're talking about today, because the federal government is not telling them. They're not posting this anywhere. Yeah. They are in lockstep with industry. Mm. But it's a tragedy. So the only way I think we can get people accommodated is through what Scott's going to talk about, and that is the law. All right. Scott, let's talk about what steps can be taken to protect people. What steps are being taken? Well, first of all, anyone who thinks the government is going to protect them needs to start thinking something else. They need to take their own affirmative steps to protect themselves. And there are some things they can do. Susan's mentioned some of them. You know, if you think that you're already suffering or if you think that you might suffer later because of exposure today, then you need to minimize the extent to which you expose yourself. Turn off your Wi-Fi router at night. Put your cell phone in airplane mode. Uh, don't leave your phone or tablet by your bed. If you have a smart meter, put the places where you spend the most time on the other side of the house. Certainly monitor your children's use of these wireless devices. They've been exposed to this far longer than anyone else. And I think we're going to find 10, 20 years from now how horrible the consequences are. Mm -hmm. uh, monitor their behavior. You know, don't let them carry this thing. You know, don't let them carry it around all the time. Limit their usage of wireless devices. Don't carry your cell phone close to your body. Don't use your cell phone up next to your head. Get a, you know, a decent, preferably a, the, the kind that's, tubes, a headset. Um, don't carry it in your bra. Don't carry it in your pants. Don't carry it in your pocket. Put it in a bag. Point it the right direction. So if you've got to have it in your pocket, the screen side is, is towards you and the back side is what's facing the way. Second, your diet can have a lot to do with this. Uh, Susan mentioned oxidative stress. As far as we know, that's the prime, one of the primary mechanisms of harm. Uh, from oxidative stress comes many other things. 
people's bodies have a way of dealing with these free radicals. It's an oxygen molecule that's split off. Your body normally cleanses them. If it is overwhelmed, then of course you get oxidative stress, but you can boost your body's ability. Take antioxidants, blueberries, a good one. Uh, look at some of the health terms. Your diet can really help your body at least deal with this insult. So if you practice better health yourself, then you won't need to rely on the government. Getting to the government. Um, back in August of 2021, the DC circuit uh, ruled in favor of Environmental Health Trust and Children's Health Defense. Uh, I had the privilege of arguing that case along with a bunch of other good folks. It was an extraordinary team. And we convinced the DC circuit to reverse the FCC's determination that it was not going to uh, take a look at its 25-year-old's emission standards. So what the court did was remand to the commission. In other words, it sent the case back and told the commission to look at several specific things. Environmental consequences. That's another thing we haven't talked about here. There's growing evidence that uh, RF is very harmful to the environment, particularly pollinators, but also birds, bats, even trees. Uh, they're seeing the trees that are close to a cell tower. The side that's on the side of the cell tower it looks horrible. The other side is healthier. The, the court told the FCC to look at environmental effects. It told the commission to reassess its fundamental theory upon which all of its standards had been set, so-called thermal construct, where the commission takes the position that the only harm that can come from RF is if it starts to burn your skin, uh, when we all know that there's a biological response, and, but the commission completely ignores it, refuses to acknowledge it. Court told them to take a look at that again. It told them to pay particular attention to the effects on children, especially given all the changes in technology in the 25 years since they last looked at their standards. There's a couple other things. Well, we've gone back to the commission. We've asked them, okay, look, we've got remanded. Open the docket, let's get going. Well, they've sat on it. It's been almost a year now, boot from the FCC. They're not doing it. We can't get them to move. So one of the things people can do is they can write to the FCC and say, hey, hey, do what the court told you. You were remanded this, reopen your dang standard proceeding. That, that, however, will take many years, you know, even in the best of consequences by an agency. Let's just be really charitable now and think they're operating in good faith. You know, it would still take many years for them to take another look at the science. There's a ton of it. We had 11,000 pages that we put in the uh, record before the D.C. Circuit that the FCC ignored. Well, they're going to have to read it this time. That takes a little while. Uh, they're going to have to figure out what to do. So it's going to be a couple of years before we can have an opportunity to have new standards that reflect basic biology. Uh, in the meanwhile, we got to figure out what the heck to do about the people who are being harmed today. And so as Susan mentioned, uh, many of us, uh, including Odette Wilkins, including several other active, active groups and advocacy groups, have been asking the commission and other agencies, by the way, to recognize this EHS and the extent to which it can be a disability and to figure out what the heck to do as a consequence of that today. How can we help those who are suffering from this technology, uh, this involuntary exposure? They've got no choice in it. it. It just shows up. And then they try to make it go away and it can't. And everybody mm -hmm. says there's nothing we can do. It's all the FCC. Well, we're asking the FCC, do something. And we shall see if they choose to do something. 
In my opinion, this is the highest order thing. Yes, we need new standards. We absolutely need new standards. But right now, today, we need to provide some relief for thousands, perhaps millions of people who are suffering from exposure. You've been listening to Green Street Radio, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our guests today have been medical writer Susan Foster and attorney Scott McCullough. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Don't forget to check out all of our Green Street episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And reach out to us through our website, greenstreetradio.com. Thanks for listening.